Welcome back to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance, and we're going to mix it up a little bit this week. We don't have another player interview with you. Instead, we're going to share a conversation that we had with mental conditioning expert Trevor Moad. Trevor is probably best known for being the mental coach of Seattle Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson. He also works closely with pretty much all the really big NCAA football programs and does a lot of work in all types of sports, but his mission is to find ways to use mindset as a competitive advantage, which obviously speaks to the ethos of earn your edge. Cam and I were recommended Trevor's book. Uh, It's called It Takes What It Takes a couple months back, and we both really enjoyed it. We really thought that it had some fresh and unique takes on sports psychology, and they were all really closely aligned with a lot of the topics that come up in conversations here on the podcast with players when we're asking them how they're coping with pressure, what's their best performing self look like, what's that self-talk on the golf course sound like. And Trevor has some really interesting tools that he can help us add to that conversation. So we're really keen to go straight to an expert to discuss some of those topics for this week's episode. So please enjoy episode 70 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Trevor Moad. So the question I have for you kind of echoes down to the whole nature and nurture debate. And from a 10,000 foot perspective, I think ultimately we want to land on principles of good thinking, as you put it, or mental architecture. I think you phrased it in your book. And then ultimately deep dive into the book. And thank you for writing. It takes what it takes. It certainly resonated with both uh, Corey and I. So the conversations we have with many of the world's best players that we've talked to, uh, they speak about the if factor, uh, the ability to clutch up in big moments is something that's that nature bestowed upon them. But as you're in the business of nurturing the ability of thinking right, I'm curious to hear your take on the whole nature and nurture discussion related to mindset skills. Well, uh, you know, Cameron, Corey, first of all, it's a, a great opportunity to join you guys. I've never been a believer uh, in the growth of the sports psychology industry and particularly, you know, being raised in, in the business and sports psychology industry my whole life. But if there's one place that it does have some level of relevance, it is the world of golf. And going back to Bob Rotella and, and uh, you know, sort of a wide variety of people that at least sort of gave it a landing spot. But, you know, nature versus nurture is, is complicated because I think they work, you know, really well hand in hand. I think back to an event that was actually run in Dallas, Texas, one of the biggest uh, soccer tournaments called the Dallas Cup. And I remember in 2001, 2002, we came there and we had a young prodigy. And at the time, there were about six prodigies living in Bradenton, Florida. Paula Kramer was one, the female golfer, the Pink Panther. Michelle Wee was in and out. You had uh, uh, Yvonne uh, Lendl's kids, I think Marika Lendl. And then you had um, Peter Cordes' daughter, Jessica. You had Maria Sharapova. Michael Beasley and Yelena Yakovich, and they were all within three dorms of each other, you know, anywhere between uh, uh, 12 and, and 15 years old. So it was a real fascinating time, you know, at that place. And I remember going to the Dallas Cup and I'm walking into the final game with our young player. People may not remember him now, but there was an incredible soccer prodigy named Freddie Adu. And Freddie was a global presence by the age of 12. And he'd earned it. And we're walking into Dallas. And he's 12 at the time. And as we're walking in, there's maybe 16,000 people, you know, like a classic Texas football stadium. <laughs> and Fred said, you know, how many people do you think are in here right now? I said, probably 15, 16,000. He said, man, it's such a trip knowing that 32,000 of these eyes are focused on me. And we were playing Newcastle in the final. Newcastle's uh, under-17 versus the U.S.'s uh, under-17 national team. And I think we won maybe 3-1 and Freddie scored two goals. And in every big moment, in every big opportunity, he never disappointed. His whole youth career, he never just like when you needed a big play in a big moment, uh, while most American players couldn't do it, he did it all the time. So and part of you felt like he had something that was in his nature, like Mm -hmm. something that was incredible. But you also look back at the sort of hyper-controlled environment of Bradenton, Florida at the time at IMG Academy, and you realize as you watched his career evolve as he went to Major League Soccer and to Benfica and would end up playing on 14 teams in 14 years and not have the career that he was capable of have, that the lack of nurturing or his ability to get behind great habits outside of Bradenton really took away the opportunity for his nature to come forward. And so to me, I think it goes 
if you have an incredible aptitude or, or this clutch gene, it's never going to be able to be developed if you don't hit enough shots, if you don't work hard enough, if you don't have the other, you know, we call it the aggregate of marginal gains. If you don't sleep, if you don't train, if you don't have enough shots, if you don't understand the clubs to hit, you know, all the things, you know, maybe you don't have to be the freak that Tiger was growing up, you know, golfing at 11 o'clock at night and flashlights and, you know, staying at Stanford after the team would leave for, for hours and all those things. And I, because I think there's athletes that are built successfully without being freaks. But uh, to answer your question, I think it's a combination. I think if you have the nature, it can't function without the nurture. I think it's a really good balance. I think as a, as a professional golfer, the first thing you want to understand is, do you do the things good golfers do? You know, I saw a statistic in 1998, maybe 2000, where it was uh, Fred Funk was the number 20, uh, 20th ranked golfer, I think at that point in the 86 tournaments that he had played um, and made maybe $2 million. And uh, the 100th money winner uh, in the 86 tournament was a guy named Barry Cheeseman. And Barry, um, you know, was at like $511,000. And I remember seeing it and, and my dad, who was a huge golfer, said to make a difference and, you know, four times the difference in money, even though they played the same, you know, for the most part, same 86 tournaments or 86 rounds, excuse me, like, who would you think is better? I said, well, what do you mean? I mean, he said, well, who, do, who would you think is better between the two? And I said, well, what's the metric? And he said, I'm strokes per round. I said, okay, that makes sense. And I said, well, obviously in that particular year, Funk must have kicked his ass, you know, I mean, to, to make that much more, you know, two, two million plus to 500,000. Uh, obviously he golfed way better. And he's, you know, he said, well, Funk had a good year. He averaged 70.34 strokes per round, but Cheeseman averaged 70.35. And it was performance at a given time, right? It was 0 0.01. He said, in the ability to make that one additional putt every 24 holes, you know, was the difference. And when you could score, could you score in the second round versus the final round? All those things. And, you know, it was an incredible analogy for me that was a golf analogy, but it made sense in business and sports is that, you know, aptitude, like a lot of people are, are really, really good. And some people are just a little bit better at the right times. And I think that that's, you know, obviously for you, Cameron, with Jordan and, and all the different types of things, as, as easy as you can have it, you can still be right at that level and somebody else can just get a little bit ahead. You know, think about all the golfers that, that grew up in the Tiger era. Like, sucks to be you. you know? <laughs> or the Michael Johnson era or the Usain Bolt era. I want to go back a little bit to what you discussed at your time at IMG, because I think that there's, you had access to a large number of young athletes that were developing and learning and that you could influence. And you listed just a second ago, all the ones that we know and that we, we would have heard of. And you cut you, I heard you mention it as the, the Hogwarts for sports, which I think is a really cool way to think about it for those that don't know. Particularly back then, is. particularly for back then. I think yeah, it's right, marketing. Exactly. Yeah, sure. So now. But, but there, there were as many of those that the success stories that we've heard of, there was plenty that we haven't heard of. Right. And that's mm -hmm. just inherent to any kind of a, of a talent identification program like that. But I'm curious if you, and, and I know you answered a little bit in your answer before, but just to give you an opportunity to expand on that. When you look at the behaviors and traits as you're kind of contrasting those that we've heard of and those that didn't quite make it, what are the biggest things that stand out as far as just those, behaviors and actions that you saw and observed during that time? Well, I believe every athlete has an equal opportunity to be unequal. So I think we all get sort of the same chance to get better or worse. But I also think there's some realities based upon parents and parent ego. And a lot of times for parents, and I understand and I get it, you know, I mean, there's, there's parents spend $150,000 at IMG to get their kid a book scholarship to Duke softball. You know, and that's a book scholarship. People don't know that's like $1,200 a year, but they can say my son or daughter has a scholarship to do to play baseball, which Marcus Stroman did or something like that. And so when everything broke out around the college scandal, you know, I had good friends, I had a good friend lose, lose his job at UCLA soccer. And I mean, I never judged that because I get it. I know how important it is at places like IMG in places like Texas for parents to be able to say, oh, my son is a two handicap and is going to play, you know, golf at Arkansas like uh, Coach Ledbetter's kids did. 
and different types of things. Like there's value to that, but there are also some strategic mistakes if you don't just follow the plan. And the one thing I would share is I remember, uh, you know, Yvonne Lendl, there were so many great parents around there. I remember Yvonne Lendl would stop by a lot. And for people that don't know Yvonne Lendl, he was kind of like the bad guy of tennis in the 80s. And you had like Connors, who was the good guy. God knows what McEnroe was. But Yvonne Lendl was this like 6'4", thin, looked like Yvonne Drago, but for tennis, but was awesome. And now he had obviously, you know, God got him back in a unique way. He had like four daughters and he's in Bradenton and he's kind of, and they're all golfers. So, but he would come by and we would talk a lot. So we were doing an evaluation of those six athletes I mentioned and he knew all the sports. And I said, Who do, who's going to make it? Who isn't? And I'll never forget his discussion about why Paula Kramer would make it and why Michelle Wee wouldn't. And Michelle at this point, like I said, she was in and out. And I think at that point she was spending some time being coached by David Ledbetter. And I didn't know anything. I'm not, I've been around golf, you know, particularly being the director of training at IMG Academy, but you know, I'm not a golfer because I spent so many weekends, you know, married, like in college football. If I come back on a Monday and say, I'm going to go golf. Like my wife would tell me to go play in traffic. You know, it just wasn't going to be in the cards for us, even though I lived on a course, but I'll never forget, you know, he said as a parent, it's a real difficult decision about moving your kids up. And he said, a lot of times you want to move the kids up because A, you have the bragging rights and then B, it, it stretches them physically. But if the kid didn't learn how to win at the first level that he or she was, then it doesn't make sense to move them up, particularly in golf, because so much of golf is learning how to win, True. learning how to close, learning how to play under pressure. He said, Michelle doesn't have that ability. Not that she's not capable, but she's been pushed so fast She's never learned how to close out tournaments, never learned how to embrace that pressure. Pressure is a relative term. If you're 11 years old playing in a 12 and under tournament, you're feeling pressure in the same way if you're 36 years old playing in a, a PGA event because you want to win and you have the sense. You might think at 11 your parents aren't going to feed you if you don't win. And if you're 36, you might think you don't, if you don't make the cut, you're going to be playing in the you know Las Vegas Hooters Tour. And so he said – uh, Paula's family's done a really good job of her being successful at each level she's been at and then eventually winning there and gradually earning the right to move up. And he said, so even though Michelle can hit it farther and can do more, and this was before she was playing in the men's tournaments, until you learn how to win, you can't win. And I remember like that was fascinating. And then he talked about Freddie Adu and Michael Beasley and some of the other ones. And Sharapova, you just knew even though she wasn't the best athlete, she was really thin. Sharapova is the most dominant psychological athlete I've ever seen in my life. And that includes Nick Saban. For what reason? You know, it, it was interesting, Cameron. Like, she would come in our, our sports psychology office at 11, 12 in a roller skates and, you know, do her homework. And, and what the academy did was they had all sorts of different levels, but they had, like, the top eight players in golf, top, uh, then the second top eight top eight tennis players, second top eight, and they all had sort of different things. And we would teach a lot of those sports psychology classes each week. And like her pressure on herself to win and to do what it took to win, like even, you know, when I left there in 2012, I would spend a lot of time because she, she would uh, spend five months and 29 days in Manhattan Beach and six months and one day in uh, Longboat Key. So she would come back a lot and call and I'd open up the weight room and then, you know, hang out and spend time with her coach and things like that. She just had the best habits and, and the, the most determination. She wouldn't leave until she got it right. Uh, she was a perfectionist in a good way. She wasn't a poor loser, but she demanded a lot of herself. And then when moments got big, she wanted to be in those moments, even though she didn't win all the time. And she, she was looking for that opportunity. That's a big part of the nature you want to be in that pressure but that i don't know that you're born with that i think your preparation has made you believe that you're ready for that it's interesting you say many of the things you've just said you know going back a, a few minutes you talked about leveling up at the right time and ricky fowler and kevin chapel an array of other players that we've previously interviewed echo that sentiment also the desire to want the ball or want to be in that situation also is echoed in our conversations recently with adam scott uh, one of the world's best players uh, he talked about 
he builds confidence based on feeling like he has prepared correctly. And that's his foundation or the anchor that allows him to put forth in those situations where people may wilt under pressure, an attitude of confidence says, I've done the work and therefore I'm entitled to hit this shot now and I'm entitled to hit a great shot. Let's go back a little bit. One, one part we've skipped over is origin story. And I think it's a really interesting origin story, your origin story, that is, that finds us probably leading into a conversation about one of the tenets of the book. You know, your dad, Bob Moad, might be considered one of the foundational voices in a positive psychology movement. But yet one of the major tenets in your book is neutral thinking. Can you take us back to where this ideology, maybe this ethos of yours of neutral thinking came to life and how it, I guess, germinated out of the Petri dish of growing up Bob Moad's son? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, first of all, I think my dad, you know, as being one of the pioneers in the early 70s, right? And uh, Mm -hmm. going into that, he was a coach and a teacher. But, you know, in the mid-70s when he started with uh, uh, Lou Tice at the Pacific Institute, the world was only framed up through two lenses, negative thinking and positive thinking, you know, and you had had sort of the seminal book, which had Christian elements to it, but had a lot of sort of non-secular elements and secular elements. Norman Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking. And, you know, you had a lot of that stuff. So I think my dad was part of the times like where he came up, all right, well, we don't want to be negative. So you're going to teach positive psychology, which was really starting to grow then and take off in the business world. But for me, I, 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 like, I always really struggled with it. And I was also raised, you know, we weren't allowed to watch the news, no national news, couldn't listen to country music. We could only watch sports and the radio uh, and the weather, uh, which my dad thought the weather was agnostic. Um, so <laughs> in, in our house, we minimized the negativity that was allowed. So I think my dad was onto something by doing that because, you know, his family were immigrants from Lebanon and he didn't, you know, he wasn't raised that way in particular. So uh, that was part of it. But I think secondly, the idea of of being told constantly to be positive, you know, when I was uh, three for 11 in a basketball game, or I didn't do well academically, or I was, you know, facing other challenges, uh, it never, I struggled with it. But I did believe that negativity worked negatively. And so I wasn't going to go down that road. So I was kind of lost a little bit. So I would try to be positive. I had affirmations, I had cards, you know, they started me with you know, a psychology, a cybernetic waves at four years old and affirmations and all that stuff. My, my parents were far from hippies. It was, but it was, you know, it was the education my dad taught. And a lot of it was habits and behaviors and a lot of the traditional elements, but certainly the power of positive thinking was big. And my dad signed every letter positively, Bob Moat. I think where, you know, you know, I got sick in college, I had to drop out and I really started to understand. I, I think in general, Cameron, Corey, most people think like the whole mind thing is just bullshit. You know, like it's just, yeah, it would be good if I was better at it. I think people genuinely agree with that, but it feels optional. You know what? I can be an asshole today. I can have a great mentality on the course. But like for me, I was probably not that much different. You know, even though I, I was raised, I was probably smarter than most people with it. But when I got sick and dropped out of college, had to miss a year of sports, had to do all sorts of different things, like, then all of a sudden, man, like, this was not bullshit to me. And, like, this is, like, if my mind wasn't going to work the way it needed to work, my head went to the space that I might not make it, and I'm 18. And that's what it took for me to really understand it. And I was the son of arguably one of the best speakers and certainly, you know, an incredible educator in this field. So that's why I have so much respect and hopefully the book communicates. I know most people think it's all bullshit, you know, and and so I've never worried about that, you know, uh, for me. But when I started working with the Jacksonville Jaguars and I was going into pro football, you know, in Bradenton, I taught everything, man. I'd have 150 kids from Venezuela that needed babysitting to 16 of the best young golfers that would include like a Peter Uline and Apollo Kramer. And then I could have eight CEOs from Sony 16 golf coaches from Japan. I mean, it was everywhere. Eight guys getting ready for minor leagues, you know, 16 guys getting ready for the major leagues, 34 guys getting ready for uh, the NFL combine. So like, yeah, I had every population, but it was great trial and error because my foundation was high school teacher. And so all of a sudden I realized quickly, like that doesn't work. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. That doesn't make sense. Wow. This works with everybody. 
And so, you know, what I started to understand was everybody universally agrees that negative thinking is not good for them. And even the biggest assholes that I would meet, and your sport has got some great assholes in it, let's be honest. <laughs> when I would meet uh, them, like none of them could say, I'll tell you what, the more I say dumb things out loud, the more negative I'm about myself, the more of the wrong things I watch, the more bad input I get about my future, and the more uh, I externalize how bad I'm going to play in Augusta, I'll tell you what, that helps me play a lot better golf. Like, <laughs> nobody's going to say that. No one. Like, nobody will say that. They know that that's not true. The question is the belief that you can do something about it. So a lot of times you accept, just like a par five might be difficult with a dog leg, you accept your own brain as a dog leg that you got to play on every course. And why do you accept that? Because the people that have been teaching sports psychology have picked all the wrong things to teach. In my mind, it's all hard. Everything's hard. Like being positive is hard. Meditating is hard. Affirmations are hard. So I started thinking about like, well, to me in all my years around great athletes, they're less about what they do and they're more about what they don't do. They're more about what they don't say. They're more about what they don't watch. So how can I help them not do some things that are gonna make them better? Now, Corey and I agree 100% with this philosophy. We actually describe it as error elimination. And we think it's a good time to jump in and give you a way to not do something that's stupid and frustrating, and that's three-putting. In fact, when we think of the lowest hanging fruit for score reduction, we ultimately land on eliminating costly three-putts. And this applies for recreational players all the way up to seasoned professionals. In fact, there's possibly nothing more frustrating to professional players than standing over a birdie putt, be it 15 or all the way back to 40 feet and walking away with a bogey. So the insight we have for you involves using TrackMan as your tool, your force multiplier, so to speak, to fine tune your sense of touch to a tour level. Touch control is built on a sense of how much force you apply to the ball for a given situation, meaning that situation is what distance you need to roll the ball over what given green speed and what slope. Now, historically, most great touch putters gain this knowledge from hitting hundreds upon thousands of putts and frankly have no idea of the actual speed the club is moving or, frankly, even the speed the ball is moving. And don't get us wrong, this works, and it stood the test of time, of course, but it presents a couple of big challenges if this is how you're trying to improve your force control. Number one is time. Who has eons of time to ded dedicate to learning this skill? And number two, feedback. The feedback we get can be way more precise if we use what most of us are now accustomed to using, and that's technology. And so that's where TrackMan comes in. So we've got a drill called cluster sets that we want you to do using TrackMan. You can do it either indoors or outdoors. Paying attention to the club speed and ball speed as the two important feedback data points. And here's how it works. You'll need five balls and two ball markers or coins and a relatively flat portion of the green. Put a ball marker down as your starting point and then next place a marker 15 feet away from that starting point. And the goal is to hit all five putts inside 10% of the target distance. So for that 15 foot putt, you're looking for all those putts to have a cluster inside of one and a half foot. Once you complete the 15 foot putt, move the tee to 25 feet and repeat that process. And the goal is now two and a half feet for the 25 foot putt and repeat from 35 and 45 feet with the same rule of 10% error allowance. And you'll notice a pattern on your successful putts. And we'll use our experience as example on a 12 foot stamp indoor putting surface. We see successful 15 foot putts have a club speed of three miles per hour and a ball speed of five mile per hour. Then on that 25 foot putt, which is our indoor distance limit, we see club speeds of just under five miles per hour and ball speeds just under eight miles per hour. And so now it's time for you to test it out using your track man. Remember the goal of the exercise, all five putts inside 10% of that total distance. Pay attention to the feel for the club speed and the ball speed reported by TrackMan and hopefully save yourself that frustration of turning those birdie opportunities into bogeys by eliminating three putts from your rounds. And so, you know, uh, after my going into my second year at the University of Alabama, and I like I'm not even a huge sports fan. I never even played football, but I obviously understood this industry and it was the one place in my life I had a little bit of aptitude. And, you know, we were six and six and I, I you know, I told Coach Saban, I said, you know, I said, what do you think we've got to do going into the second year? I said, well, first of all, 
like we got to build an alphabet. Like we have to build a foundation psychologically. You know, I come in, Dr. Elko comes in, you've got other people that come in, but like all we're influencing is willpower. We're having a conversation or showing something quick. Guys are getting excited. And then by the 13th hole, they're like, yeah, this isn't me. I'm going to go back to being exactly who I am. You know, and, and so willpower will always lose to who you really think you are, your self-image. So we had to build a foundation. I said, well, we're lifting in the summer. We're playing seven on seven. Why don't we do mental conditioning? He said, great, come every week. I'm like, I'm not going to Tuscaloosa every week. I had 80 employees in Bradenton. But so we found kind of like a middle ground and we really started teaching just a basic foundation. Number one, it was built on case studies. So we studied Tiger. And then at the same point, we'd studied Jamarcus Russell. Why'd Tiger make it? Why was he starting to struggle? And we had unique access to the real information, which connected a lot to behavior, obviously some to, to health. We studied Drake. We'd study um, the founder of uh, Facebook. I can't, I can't think of his Mark name. Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg. We had Mark Zuckerberg come and visit. And we, so we, we'd have these case studies that would frame up habits, but we would never use big words like habits. We'd just like, why does Drake have 11 number one songs and another person doesn't? And then Drake would talk about goals and other things and different types of things. And, you know, like maybe this is something to consider. And we did a lot, you know, based upon that. And, and then we just studied basic foundation. You have an internal voice, you have an external voice. There's outside influence, there's inside influence. Inside influence is 10 times more powerful than outside influence. Outside voice is 10 times more powerful than inside voice. Negativity is four to seven times multiple more powerful than positivity. You externalize negative talk it's 70 times more likely that what you don't want to have happen will influence you. And everything was database with stories, with videos, with all the things. And it made sense. And so for a long time, we studied the, uh, like the elimination of negativity. And our guys understood, if I just don't say stupid things out loud in the course of a game, in the course of a practice, and I was never more positive, my mind would be free to solve problems and function more uh, effectively. Right. And so not saying dumb things out loud was attainable in a much easier fashion than trying to be positive after you just hit four Frosty the Snowmans on hole two through six. <laughs> you know? and, 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 and so, and the data just made sense. What if I need to vent? What if I need to vent to myself? There's no science around venting. So you could do that and you'll pay the consequences. One of the more common questions that we get from Altus clients and listeners is how do I spin it like a tour player? Well, the first step is to treat your equipment like a tour player, and that means that you've got the right golf ball and you've got fresh grooves. Visit Vokey.com to see the spin research that Bob Vokey and his team have conducted to better understand how grooves wear over time. After 75 to 100 rounds of golf, you owe it to yourself to test your grooves to make sure that they're still getting maximum spin from your wedges. Find a fitter at Vokey.com for a spin test soon. And maybe the reason why so many people hear sports psychology or what we've heard and we're ready to, it, it kind of doesn't pass our bullshit detector because if, like you said, if I'm, if I have a, a string of bad holes, I'm not really ready to like fist pump and be positive about it. I'm not, it, it doesn't, it feels delusional and maybe inauthentic to do that. And so while we, we turn that off because it doesn't seem right, I want to talk about a part of your book, a tenant in your book about privileging the past. Because while we, we shut off that delusion, what we're, the delusion that we're quick to pay attention to is the narrative that just because this just happened, I had three bad holes in a row, we come up with these crazy narratives that say, okay, that's what's about to happen. That's predicting my future performance. And right. we do pay attention to that delusion and we fall victim to that. So as an athlete that's listening, that is quick to privilege the, the past, which is a really cool way to put it, in, in my opinion, what protocols do you try to equip your athletes with to help them overcome that? Well, the first thing is that's in our control is, I mean, I mean we, ha we have three states, what happened, what's happening, and what will happen. And they're all independent, and we're equally responsible for all of them. So if the first round you played four bad holes and you shot a 75, like you're responsible for that. But independently, each hole has a history and a life of its own. But our hard wiring is going to look at the negative holes a lot more influentially than, our, than we're going to look at the good holes. That's just how we are. And so you have to understand that for 15,000 years, we've been wired to expect the worst. Uh, and we were wired that way because if we didn't expect the worst, then a dinosaur might sit on our head. But there are simple truths. And the truth is 
the past is real. And that's where I think positive thinking is a struggle for people. Because like when I went through my divorce, a lot of my friends said, think about all the people now you get to meet. Well, in my mind, I got married not to meet people. So like my mind jumping to going out and dating from where I was, was not like, I, I couldn't think that way. But what was in my control? So I had to own it and understand. But what we've learned is, if I look at 15 to 30 minutes of a former significant other social media, it takes me an additional two to four weeks to get over her, just for that 30 minutes. So what I would do to help myself going forward was what was in my control. But I didn't pretend that I wasn't grieving or struggling. I wasn't gonna live in that pain. So like when I think the idea of neutral thinking is when we, instead of go to positive and think about, all right, we're down 25 and we're gonna win, or I'm down eight strokes, you know, but we're gonna win, and we go to the reality, I'm down eight strokes, right? Or in football, Russell, I've thrown four interceptions, we're down 16 nothing. Tom Brady, halfway through the third quarter, we're down 28 to three, okay? Outcomes are not a good place to be at that point, so the mindset is, all right, I got seven to play, what can I do going forward? And, and, and so that's where I put my mind to. No different as you read in the book, Apollo 13. The ship explodes at 206,000 miles away from Earth. You can't think about landing on Earth. Your mind's not there. But if you go to negative, which so many people do, privileging the past, saying, hey, I'm just being realistic, you're not being realistic. Because when you go to negative, it's 70 times more powerful. It immediately closes your brain and takes your current present into your future because it can't recover from the negativity in time. So bad things are still happening in the next three or four shots. And now you're not changing your thoughts. You're basically living the same feedback loop. Whereas when you step back and say, God, you know, like, so Russell, I got four picks. He'll look at each pick. You know what? Back foot leaning, sailed the ball up here. I own it. Uh, if I get benched, I get benched. Going forward, I need to make sure I plant my front foot forward, extend better, and make sure Jermaine runs a better route. He's going to go out and have that conversation. Second thing, he's going to go to the score and say, it's 16 nothing. 16 nothing is two score. we got the best defense in the league. We got, they can make a stop. We can get a score. They can make a stop. We can get a score. That's just the reality. So just keep competing, keep playing. So neutral is the idea that the past is real, good or bad. And, and that goes the other way too, Corey, you know, when you're playing really well, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to continue to play well, you know, and, and you got you got to play all 60 minutes, right? You got to play all 18 holes. You got to play all 72 holes. And okay. so I think neutral is this is real, but it's not predictive. What I do next, not how I feel about what happened is going to determine it. It's resonated really well. Like our guys, you'll hear our guys at Georgia, Jake Fromm, DeAndre Swift, Kirby Smart, talk about, you know, we did a really good job of staying neutral. We wanted to kind of downshift there because we knew as, as poorly as we were playing in the first half, we had a team that could play better. We just had to get behind the things that we know we were capable of doing. And uh, we didn't want to focus on Auburn. We wanted to focus on ourselves. Nobody needed to play better. We just needed to be who we were. And our players are fluent in it. And so getting to neutral, I think, and then also in the pandemic we're in, it's going to be easier to get to the fact that, all right, the future could be different, but it's hard to be positive about the future right now in some ways. And even for the athletes, you know, like the athletes in the NBA are going to go back, but, you know, they're going to be tested every day. I've been through that test as part of a, like a protocol, like it's scary, but you have to look at it like, okay, well, hey, this is part of the process, part of to get back. You can get your mind neutral about it. Am I taking care of myself? Am I doing the things I need to do? You know, as opposed to being positive, uh, but the, the upside, positivity does still have value, but only in the absence of negativity. So I just think if a golfer can understand the idea of, I got to own this, but I also have to accept that that hasn't happened yet. And that's where I think we got to get to. And a lot of people will, you know, yes, it has happened because the first four holes sucked. So that means the next 14 suck. I want to go back real quick. Two things. I got to thank you. Every Seattle Seahawks, Russell Wilson reference that you can input into this conversation yeah, Corey makes, makes, makes Corey kind of reposition in his seat. So thanks for that. Secondly, there's a conflict that I want you to help resolve in my mind. And that conflict is this, that in your book, you reference the power of the past as a, an anchor. You reference highlight reels as 
uh, mechanism to remind Russell Wilson of who he is, what he's accomplished, and therefore what he's capable of. So in some senses, privileging the past does act as fuel to create a future reality, no? Yeah, so privileging the past is a neutral term. I think the fact that we can look back, I mean, I even think before our first or second Super Bowl, I had some of his biggest drives as a 14-year-old. And looking back and re-experiencing that. In the past, like my dad would teach it, note cards, you know, your best holes, your best moments. What do you remember about that? What did it smell like? You know, what do you remember about uh, the way you, you're, you played off the tee? What do you remember about the way or uh, psychologically, you know, for me, my senior year trying to be an All-American or, or playing professional soccer, like what do you, you know, what do you, what do you remember about those moments and walking into the stadium and all those things? Now we can do it visually. So when you can take them through those experiences and they're in those moments and you can see the face evolving from 14 years old to playing Virginia Tech in college and the crowd and all the different types of things, what you're allowing them to see is you've done it. And uh, the stage might be different, but the game isn't. One of the great thing about sports is um, the rules never change. You know, like when we're on the road or at home, the field, I mean, it's the same. So what, like, what it takes to be a really good golfer is never going to change whether you have 11,000 people on the final hole or nobody. It's still golf. And so I think that that's kind of an important piece is, is to make sure that, that when I can go back, we can show those experiences. So after the Super Bowl, obviously in front of 124 million people, he evaluated the game. And, but we watched a lot of the fourth quarters, I think maybe 26 or 27 from his career, where he led teams all the way back for wins. And we just watched him that morning for breakfast in addition to training three times, which was the most important thing we're going to do, we, that he was going to do. But just to remind him, like, that's who you are. And you look at the year later, Cam Newton, Cam still hasn't recovered. Cam walked out of his press conference, understandably so. I like Cam. And a lot of golfers you've seen, they're frustrated, they're pissed. He tells me, uh, and he said, you show me a good loser, I'll show you a loser. And I understand that mentality. You know, like, I don't want to be okay with this, playing like this in the Super Bowl. You know, whereas Russell said, they said, hey, you know, Pete Carroll says it's his fault. Hey, the ball's in my hands. It's my fault. You know, I own it. Uh, but we still got down the field. We made that play. And at the end of the day, got to move forward. That's not easy to do. Here at Altus, we are proud partners of Tylus, And we want to quickly tell you about our favorite irons. Cam and I, along with many of our clients at Altus, are gaming the Titleist T-Series. The engineering ingenuity that has made Titleist the long-standing number one iron on the PGA Tour delivers three strikingly new iron designs as part of the Titleist T-Series. Powered by breakthrough technology, including max impact for maximum speed and distance control across the face, the new T-Series T100, T200, and T300 models offer a combination of power, performance, playability, and feel, unlike anything Titleist has ever designed. Visit Titleist.com to learn more about the T-Series irons today. I love the highlight reel, and it's something that we we have used before. But uh, I send it to my guys all the time. Our teams, every night before Georgia, a big one, we watch an educational video that might study. We've used Jordan before. We've, we use like all those like rising stars of Under Armour right. uh, when it looked like Under Armour was really going to take that giant leap. And uh, where we're like watching their behaviors of E60 or 30 for 30 combined with clips of our guys. I'll go get back to you, Corey. But, but it's such an easy medium for them to download off Dropbox and then have something to watch. And I watch them with our guys all the time the night before. I remember the national championship a couple of years ago. I'm trying to think of from college game day, the volleyball player from Georgia. But she's, uh, she's coming down. And I'm walking out of uh, the conference room in the morning. She's coming to interview Kirby. And uh, she's with Herb Street, and she sees me walking out with uh, Jake Fromm still in the room. She starts panicking, what's wrong with Jake? I said, we do this the morning of every game. So what do you mean? Like, what's wrong with him? I'm like, that's not how we look at this. Um, <laughs> and I had uh, Jake Fromm on the phone with Jameis Winston, and I called Jameis because Jameis was the only other 18-year-old that had played in the national championship as a quarterback. And I called Jameis, and I'd been with Jameis the same morning before we played the national championship in the Rose Bowl. And I said, hey, man, like, can you talk to Jake? Just give him your perspective. I don't need to know anything. I'll call. I'll step out of the room. And uh, this is actually before the semifinal of the Rose Bowl. So before we called Jameis, I showed Jake Jameis's final drive with a minute and 20 seconds, and he took him all the way down the field in eight plays, and we scored. And sure enough, uh, Jameis talked for 30 minutes with Jake, and uh, – the final three minutes of the game, we were down. 
Jake took us all the way down and scored. And we talked about it. Like, after, like, you know, he's got to be big, strong, fast, study, needs his quarterback coach, all that stuff. But some of the stuff matters. It won't grow in golf. It won't grow in football. It won't grow in baseball. It won't grow in basketball because the, the field that teaches it isn't good enough. But I think that for people who want to hit that next level, there's only four or five active players in the NFL of 2,000 that I know that use someone in the sports psychology world strategically for themselves. Right. Russell's one of those guys in that world. Yeah, well, the actionable that we have coming away from it is adding the score to it, the epic score, because we've got the videos, but I think just adding the emotion and it makes it a more rich Oh, the music, the Warriors yeah, exactly. soundtrack. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, we probably have some on YouTube under Moa Consulting Group, some that we put up, but I have three people. All they do is gather film, gather music, and make these videos. I've got a new job. We work with the Yankees, um, their director of mental conditioning, Chad Bowling, who's also with the Cowboys. We do a, a share, a clip share. My guys will fly to LA, they'll get all their stuff. And, and it's awesome. And I, I produce a lot of them, you know, okay, this, 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 this. But you know, now I don't even need to produce them. These guys will just get it done. Right, finding themselves. Well, well and it's, a, it's inspiring to hear how these guys are priming in that way to get ready for these big epic moments, right? But I'm curious if you've got any steps that you recommend these guys take just to prepare mentally for the mundane, like the daily grind that ultimately prepares them to be able to be in these big moments. How, how do you cultivate the discipline to make those right decisions when the lights aren't on and there's nobody watching, there's nobody in the stands, but they're building those daily habits. Like we said before, those, those marginal gains that accumulate over time. Yeah. So we don't make them just for the big moments. We do it all year, all nice. year around. So then that'll be, we'll show a lot of workout video, some of them working out uh, embedded with specials on other athletes that are talking about how they train, how they compete. We have a whole series of, E60s, 30 for 30s, going back to the sports centuries of athletes training. And then, you know, evaluating training is such a vital step to being able to perform. And then, uh, you know, so constantly the education. But I think I love the word, Corey, priming. But, I, you know, the video to me is a step to the conversation. You know, like I can get any athlete to come in and watch a video of themselves. That opens the door for he and I or she and I to have a conversation. That's the way I look at it. They're four to eight minutes. Like when I would go to Russ's, uh, a lot of the Thursday nights, we go down to the theater room and I have a lot of situational stuff pending on the circumstance, where we're going, where we're playing, what we're doing. And then that leads, that eight minute video leads to an hour conversation. And sometimes I can go in and just have the hour conversation, but the more I can engage him, then that opens the door. And then I have a mind based upon the previous result of what, what that should be. And then I share him with his whole team, which is, you know, he's got a big team of people. And so we share those with everybody, you know, Friday night. And then a lot of times we, we uh, you know, watch him with a fascial tissue person and physical therapists, and we're all part of it together. So I, I just like it as a tool. I still think the conversation is really powerful. I still think a lot of the basic elements of psychology are key, you know, putting a blueprint, getting some things written down, having your goal. And your goal is not because you studied it in college, but because like Michael Johnson said, if you go to Safeway in McKinney, Texas, and you write down eight things versus go to Safeway in McKinney, Texas, and don't write anything down, you'll be a lot more functional. If you wrote it down, you'll go into Safeway, get your stuff, and you'll be out in 10 minutes. If you didn't write it down, you'll be 25 minutes in there and wondering why you're leaving with Twinkies. And he's like, if you look at psychology that way and you demystify it, and that was the whole goal of the book. Like, it's not, I know all these people, all these writers are like, look at my PhD. I'm for the 1% of the 1%. And we're living in the micro moments and mindfulness and all that stuff. Like, I don't even know what that is. It should not be that hard. Don't say stupid things out loud. Be very careful of what you consume, the TV you watch, the people you talk to. Have a plan. What you don't do could change your life. Be mindful of your, your outside language. And then as you, would, as you get good at the basics, you know, then start to imagine who you want to be going forward and, and, and start to visualize. And, and, and then before some of the World Cups with those youth teams, we'd go to the beach. I'd get the uh, huge stereo, play the national anthem, 
I'd play crowd noise. I'd set them up, walking through. I'd relax the guys. Uh, we'd do progressive muscle relaxation. And then I'd have them for 10 minutes just playing the World Cup. You know, and we'd already identified center backs, getting up, winning the ball, playing it simple, communicating, talking the back, whipping the Socceroos' ass. We got to beat the Socceroos. You know that. <laughs> uh, I hope that doesn't happen. But anyway, moving on. That was a nice summary of the elements of uh, the uh, mental architecture or psychological architecture. I love it. Yeah. In, in my opinion, you got to understand I'm not a college professor, I'm not a teacher. I'm not, uh, I have no interaction with the sports psychology community in the world. Yeah. Uh, none. I don't but have you, any. I, don't, I couldn't tell you one guy in golf outside of Bob Rotella, who yeah. I loved his books. You know, I thought he was cool when I met him. He was nice. Then he applied to Maine and you interact with athletes and the next question, in fact, the final question comes as you interact with coaches. You're speaking not only to an audience of athletes, an audience of people that are trying to do difficult things, but you're also talking to an audience of those that are trying to lift them up, coaches out there. And you regularly spend time around some of the best coaches in the world, people like Pete Carroll and Kirby and Coach Saban and Jimbo Fisher and many more. And so given that you're talking to an audience of coaches as well, one of the chapters in your book is it takes role models and you mentioned that attitude is contagious for the audience of coaches out there can you speak to that phrase that attitude is contagious and help them compartmentalize and i guess place the appropriate importance on the impact they have on their athletes i mean i think at the end of the day the truth is to some degree like a parent you're a marketing campaign for that athlete I still think they're way more influential over themselves than you are. So I, I think we, we have to be careful how we celebrate the people we coach as success and failures because their failures mostly are on them and their successes are mostly on them. But we can create the architecture that gives them the best chance to succeed. And that's helping them understand. I think the more we can paint a picture and tell stories what I try to do, so let's say I fly to uh, Michigan State, Mel Tucker is getting ready, and I spend a lot of time, just so you know, when I, uh, around the golf coaches there and the, the baseball coaches and the women's soccer coaches. and I mean, as much time as I can because, you know, you want to get to spend that time and you learn a lot. Uh, Alabama's golf coach spent a lot of time around Coach Saban, and anytime I was up there, all three of us would sit down together. But what, what I try to do is uh, the coaches typically will give me 15 minutes. Uh, in a staff meeting, which is a lot of time, you know, like for two hours, and I'll do coach education. So I might show a three or four minute video. Like I showed one recently on the bystander effect. And the bystander effect is the psychological effect is if like you're walking down the street and somebody's laying on the ground and nobody's helping them, then a rule automatically gets created that you can't help them. So now it's harder for you to go help them. But if somebody actually goes and helps them, then a new rule, that old rule is broken and a new rule is created. So you go help. And, you know, we were talking about the, the herd mentality and the influence. And I showed like a four minute video on that. And then I, you know, then I presented some different things on that. Like, how do we understand a lot of times our kids don't engage in meetings and things like that is there's an unwritten rule created that I can't talk in a meeting. And so if we can get people to talk, then the rule changes. And so we got to plant strategically and all the different types of things. I think for golfers, this is the best thing I would say, like who you are up until now you have to be responsible for him or her. Like, that's your truth. Like, that's your reality. You can't pretend that that isn't good or bad. But who you're going to be going forward, you got a lot of influence on that. I follow golf. I love golf. And I don't know a lot of professional golfers. The last golfer I got to spend time with, uh, spend a good amount of time with, you know, uh, I'm trying to think maybe five, six years ago, was Gary Woodland. And we had an Under Armour relationship with. And most golfers who didn't act like golfers was, you know, like the Under Armour guys wanted me to, like, like, I'm not like a traditional golfer, and so I'm more of like an athlete-athlete. Gary was more of an athlete-athlete, so I spent some time around him. But I just, you know, I think it's an incredibly unique sport where there's so much time to get in your own way. And I think the more that you just um, develop uh, some type of strategy in and around minimizing the negativity, I think that gives you a chance just to let your brain solve the problems and be more effective. Because it's, I mean, if there was ever a, a process sport I mean, just watching Tom Brady suck tells you like how incredibly challenging it is, you know, and, and you sit there and say, uh, but it, it, at the same point, it, it's not uh, unbeatable. And, you know, you're responsible for being as good as you can be. 
And confidence is not magical words. It's not magical mantras. It's the belief that you put the work in and you earn the time and therefore you can cash in. And when you're ready, it's like a test. You want to be there, whether you miss it or you make it. You know, I remember in the national championship, we walked off the field uh, or when Tim Tebow beat us at Alabama, like there's nothing more we could have done. We got beat. You know, when you get beat, you get beat. But man, when you beat yourself, it's tough. It was certainly relevant to us reading it. And, and it took some, some kind of arm twisting for Cameron to talk me into to reading uh, Russell Wilson's uh, sports guy. It's the forward. You exactly. got to rip the forward out. It's, it's hard to even you did right. You did do a good job, though. But it's as good of an endorsement as I can give, man. And that's what we really wanted to do. We wanted to, to – the tenets of the book really, really resonated. We wanted to awesome. have you on so that we could share it with uh, a listenership that I know will agree. So hopefully uh, we've done that and they'll check it out more and, and check out It Takes What It Takes. So th- thank you very Thanks, much well, for having yeah, us, Yeah, you know, I mean – and think, you know, think of it takes what it takes. It's just an agnostic term. You know, it takes what it takes. It's going to take exactly. what it takes to play with no, uh, no fans, but it's still going to be golf. And I think when you start listening, just my last thing, when you start listening to the golfers who are externalizing, I don't know, it's going to be tough to play, you know, with no crowds versus the people that don't say anything. I think you're right. going to find the people that are going to navigate it better. But thanks again. I had a chance to listen to a couple of yours. Uh, Sean sent me and um, it's just a great opportunity to be on here. Good luck in your guys' coaching and your uh, readership, and and uh, let's stay in touch, okay? Cool. Beautiful. Thanks, Thanks Trevor. See you, man. Appreciate it. For listening to this episode, if you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram, so follow at Altus Performance, and you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.